Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you in part today by Modern Empire Music, featuring the brand new release from Rock Band, Rock Badasses, Rock Mavens, Fox Bat. It's called Do South. And coming up later, I'll play you a little tasty snippet of my favorite track. But now, let's get the show started. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Rumoring in your window about your favorite bands and your favorite artists and your favorite songs. And I'm your favorite. I'm Brian. And I'm Murdoch. And welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. And if you have to state that you're someone's favorite, you're not their favorite. It's like what I tell my parents. I know I'm your favorite. And they're like, uh-huh, sure. So I, I, I'm just expressing my insecurity from all of the love I've gotten from about you. In the weeks that you have have not been on the show, people do not like it when you're not here. Everyone loves Phil. Phil has been a great fill-in, but he is not Murdoch. So Murdoch is back, and to celebrate, I know there are bands you can speak freely about without notes. And there's three that come to mind. <laughs> Motley Crue, Kiss, and Van Halen. And so today, I want to talk about two of the three. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, I am so freaking excited. But of those three, I can tell you which one is not in this of the three. Which one do you think we're not talking about today? We're not talking about Motley Crue. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, we've spent a lot of time talking about Crue. And we've actually talked about Van Halen on the show some. A great episode about the M&Ms around the time Eddie died. Uh, Another on the backstory of that 1984 album cover, which wasn't really about them, but was still Van Halen adjacent. But we've never dived into who they were before the fame. The origin story, if you will. And I love the Van Halen origin story because, man, when we talk about being music nerds, you and I, these guys, Eddie and Alex Van Halen, a couple of music nerds, like, we like to talk about rock music, which isn't really all that nerdy, right? But these guys were playing, like, in in later hosen with their father. They were those sorts of, of music nerds coming over from Holland uh, in their elementary school years and trying to make it in California. Did you did you know much about their high school experience? Because I read something about that between both Alex and Eddie talking about being, you know, not being American and being at that high school was a big it was a big drag. Oh, yeah. And they have said throughout their they said throughout their entire lives and Alex, I'm sure, still says that, you know, part of the reason they were so close and were such a unit, not just musically, but in yeah. their relationship with each other, was that they were each other's lifelines. And, you know, I talked to a close friend of mine recently who told me a story about how he, uh, his parents came from Mexico into California when he was in utero. And he said, uh, just sort of in passing, when we were talking about something about, how he became the lifeline for his mother at a very young age and, and and what a weird distorted sort of lens it puts on your childhood when you are put into that situation to be sort of an interpreter wow. for an adult at a very young age. And that, and that is definitely what we see with the Van Halens. Right. Who turn out to be unbelievable musical geniuses, specifically late Eddie it's totally weird for me real recently thinking about that he's not here because even if 
the music was marginal at best, whatever singer was in there. You could go see Eddie Van Halen and watch that 30-minute guitar solo, and it always kicked ass. And there's there's and, not a lot of bands like this, right, where the, yeah. the star, uh, the attraction, and, and this was a lot of the tension that they dealt with the entire length of their career was it didn't matter even if you had an incredibly flamboyant frontman, the real star of the show was the guy on guitar. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. With with the what when I think about him, when, what do you think about what era? Like, what is he wearing? I know what I think. What, <laughs> when you just say Eddie Van Halen, like, what is he wearing? Is he- uh, yeah. Well, that's a funny thing, right? So one of the things we're going to get into today, are we really going to talk about, like I said, the beginning of the band. And one of the struggles at the beginning of the band was this struggle between the flamboyance of Dave and the sort of workmanlike qualities of the rest of the guys. And so, you know, they talk a lot about in these early interviews and in these early stories uh, about how they didn't want to wear stage clothes. And that was a Dave thing. And Dave would say, like, guys, we've got to we got to not be wearing T-shirts and, you know, flannel on stage. So what do you think of? I think of the white overalls immediately, the white overalls. But um, but what I try not to think about is the first fifty one fifty tour when they were wearing big baggy crazy parachute pants. That was real weird. <laughs> well, okay, so let's talk. Like I, I said, we're going to talk about two of the three. We're going to talk about Eddie, Alex, Michael, and Dave, and then particularly we're going to talk about one guy from the Kiss Army. Paul will make a, a brief appearance, but we're really going to talk about Mr. Gene Simmons. So let, let's go way back to the beginning of Van Halen, though they weren't called Van Halen at first. This is another part of their story that I love. Uh, Trojan Rubber Company was one version of the band, which is hilarious that they called themselves that. <laughs> so ridiculous. And then and then Mammoth, which Mammoth. a name that Eddie's son Wolfgang has now taken on with his initials. Uh, yeah. Mammoth WVH. Uh, and, and put out some delectable power rock. I think we disagree on how good that album is. I love it. Um, yeah. But... Yeah. Oh, you want to hear something interesting about this that I just learned? So, yeah. do you know that that album he was he's that album's been in production for like a decade, like it just yeah. came out last year, but he was working on it like as early as 2012 or 2013, back when Van Halen was touring. Right. I didn't. So, so I've obviously followed that whole thing, man, about how Wolfie got in the band because it's so bizarre. But I remembered knowing it as a kid, like as a younger kid, he was working on music. So I thought, wow, well, I guess he just got, you know, come on, coach, you get, we'll put you in, kid. So you the know what, family that, band. you know that when he joined, uh, he had just learned the bass, like three weeks before. <laughs> no, I didn't know yeah. that. Like, he didn't know how to play bass. Like, and they, and that's just the, the cert, that is the, uh, that's the, that's the lineage, right? Like, that's just what he grew up around. He's got this uncle and this father who are, you know, prodigious musicians and he just was one too and he knew guitar and drums really well and they started playing together on bass and what's crazy is there's an interview that the two of them did together i think it was with the guitar world and this was probably at the time he's 16 15 16 and they're talking about how they decided to start playing together like actually officially having him be in the band and eddie would just be like hey wolf do you want to do you want to play together tomorrow or whatever? And he'd say, sure. And he would come in with a list of the Van Halen songs he wanted to do. And they would just play them together. 
And then he would come in the next day with another 30. And, you know, when they actually start, wow. when they put together that last Amazing. that last record, when they put that together, um, they let Wolfie and Dave pick the songs. Wow, that is such an amazing that is such an amazing thing. And man, at the end, Eddie was just polished and sharp. They rehearsed for a month at the KFC Yum Center here in yep. Louisville, yep. Kentucky. Yep. And my understanding from one of the people at the Yum Center is that Dave never came to rehearsal. Okay, so this is this is uh, you're talking about 2012. And this let's is go back to this, let's go back well, to the beginning. I, I'm saying it's very consistent. The stories that you would hear from the very beginning were <laughs> sort of this same dichotomy. And I remember knowing I mean I've known you for so long and I've known how much you love Van Halen and we've had a lot of conversations about Van Halen and I am I was sharing this with you sort of before we started rolling that right. I to be free, to, to 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 just be honest, I'm not a huge Van Halen fan. I find them fascinating. I really enjoy the story. I really enjoy learning about them and reading about them and all that. But it's much more academic than it is emotional for me. I'm just not emotionally invested in their tunes. But every report you hear from early the early days, um, and you talked about them in high school, whenever you hear people talk about knowing them in high school or seeing the band in high school, Eddie is always holding the guitar. He's always holding a guitar. And there's multiple stories in some of the research that I did and books that I read where people will say, you know, other guys would go out seven o'clock on a Friday, I'd come home at midnight and it would look like Eddie had not moved from where he was. And he had been holding the guitar and noodling on the guitar the entire time. So, what, but to get back to this band, we got distracted talking about Wolfie. Uh, the key term that gets used when talking about early Van Halen is party band. But you also may call it cover band. I mean, they were essentially a cover band for years and years and years. And it's funny because I think with so much history now between when this was and where we are today, you sort of start to group... Uh, you know, a lot of music from certain decades kind of together. So it's funny to me to think about these guys getting together and doing covers of, um, you know, like, hey, we're playing Black Sabbath covers. And we're, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it, it seems funny to me that the guys in Van Halen used to go out on the weekends and play the Guess Who. I was gonna say, do you got a do you got a small list of a couple like notable ones? That they, I mean, Sabbath, they Sabbath, and Guess Who. You know, they were really into. Um, uh, ten years after is that the name of that band? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Eddie was Weird. really into doing that. Ten years after, I'm going home solo. That was like his big thing um, when they first started, and that sort of led him down this path of trying to do that sort of virtuoso guitar stuff. Um, we already mentioned that they're Dutch immigrants. Dad's a musician. He's usually wearing lederhosen and sometimes brings the boys along to play. Um, they're both prodigious musicians and they don't know much about swagger and presence. They're just really good on their instruments. And on the other side of this equation, there is a rich kid in their town who is the exact opposite. If you read early reports about David Lee Roth, David Lee Roth would tell people, I am going to be a rock star. This is early seventies. There's this whole idea of a rock star has only sort of just started in the last 10 years. Imagine that, right? Imagine 10 years ago, 2010, is the first time yeah. you ever heard the term. Well, I mean, it, it really is. Just to make a comparison for people, it's sort of like being a YouTube star, right? Right. Like like David Bowie at one point was 
this person. Like, there's David Lee Roth. Like, these gigantic, huge, famous people. Like, it's pretty much the the same thing. And right, wow, but what a, it's what a thing a, that he knew how to do too. The idea of being a YouTube star now, to me and you, seems weird because it's not something that existed in our even in our young adulthood, right? So the idea that there's people who are super famous, like I, I will see a list at, at a local art center. Here's all the shows we're bringing in. And I'm like, cool. I see Lindsey Buckingham. Cool. I see blah, blah, blah. And then I see who is this person? Like, I don't know who this person is. And I will then very quickly figure out that they have some YouTube channel. Right. And it's just a whole thing that I just was not prepared to understand or embrace because it did not exist when we were coming of age. And so at this point, Rock stardom is sort of like that. So the equivalent of David Lee Roth walking around <laughs> saying he's going to be a rock star in 1970 or you 71. Gotta you got to surround that dance floor kind of longer, but man, I like how you did it. Uh, and it's, it's it's kind of like my son saying what he wants to be when he grows up as a YouTube star, right? Like to me, it sounds a ludicrous. Right. But, right. but Lee Roth would walk in with this swagger and he he wasn't really a musician and he wasn't really musical and he couldn't really sing. And I remember right. you saying this to me for years. You know, David Lee Roth can't really sing. And I did, I thought that was just something you said. I didn't realize that everyone said that. Everyone said that. Everyone that yeah. saw them in high school, everyone that ever talked about, but the only reason they got to where they got was because people kept wanting to see Eddie play guitar. Yeah, that's right. The, one of my favorite Van Halen things ever. I'm just going to drop this one because it's my favorite thing ever. At the the '83 like um, U.S. Fest when they were playing, and they open up with Romeo Delight, and they they do the first chorus, and then Dave gets to the second verse, and he gets it's, at some point he goes, "All right." And then he goes, I forgot the fucking words. Dude, I actually read something that so said that said it's like who cares? During some interview, they made some joke in passing about how often David Lee Roth would say he didn't remember the words, like on stage. Like even during their heyday. Like he <laughs> he definitely did in the reunion, but he really he even did it in the heyday. Now, I love the backstory on these how these it's two perfect. these two forces, the brothers and David Lee Roth. Their competition in the early part of the 70s, they're, and they're not even in L.A. proper. They're in Pasadena. Now, yeah. those of us that don't know California geography very well may not understand this, but they're basically in a suburb, right? So they're not, right. you know, it, they, they're not in the cool part of town. And they're um, a cover band. And they're a and cover they're not, band. Right. Playing literally in backyards. There's tons of great stories. Now, I, look, look I, coming out of this book, and let me tell you about the book. So one of the major sources for today is this book by a guy named Greg Rinoff. And if you're not familiar, Rinoff is a PhD historian. And most of what he's done with his life is just write a book about Van Halen. <laughs> it's, called, <laughs> it's called Van Halen Rising. It came out back in 2015. Um, and it is about... <laughs> Van Halen's a great life. emergence from Pasadena in the 70s. Now, since then, he has then, and I'm assuming he met Ted Templeman while creating this book, but he's wow. helped he's helped Ted Templeman write his autobiography. Oh my god. So these this is Greg Renoff's like two claims to fame. And if you don't recognize the name Templeman, obviously he will end up convincing Warner Brothers to sign Van Halen and then produce seven of the records. So he's a big part of Van Halen's story, but he comes in literally in the chapter of this book after what I want to talk today about today. Sweet. This now, is awesome, dude. Okay. So 
what I want to discuss today concerns someone else who is very interested in signing and producing Van Halen besides Ted Templeman, someone with a much bigger name. I've already said it. That, of course, Gene Simmons. So I said you you can really talk about Van Halen. You can really talk about Kiss. Give me like 30 seconds of how you would describe mid-70s Kiss to the uninitiated. Um, it was they, – they, they ripped off the New York Dolls. Um, but they had kabuki makeup and they had flame pots and uh, they had they were cartoon characters. And, and are so, they are they popular? 1976. Are they popular? 76. They've they've really they've really started to hit it tour wise. And rock and roll all night is in there somewhere. I think that's 76. And this is even before Kiss Alive too. So yeah. So I think that you have. Um, Destroyer is in there, so they're they're. I think it's set like huge band, right? I'm so, like two at this point. So October '76, yeah. they're doing pretty well. And Gene Simmons, if we know anything about him, is always looking for his next move. And enough is never enough. So he decides he wants to manage and produce. This becomes a thing. He sits down with his team and he says, "I'm going to find a band to be my project. They're going to be the a Gene Simmons production." I will pause here quickly to say, you know, he never quit doing this. And remember how you and I got really into those bands that he was touring with, like in 2013. One of them was this band from Chicago I I love called The Academy Is. Yeah, that band. That was a really, really good band. I like that band. But the metal bands, I'd like to say, were marginal at at best. So during, during this time, do you know who he's hanging out with in 76, like regularly? Cher? No, Jackie Fox and Lita Ford. Oh, really? I was thinking this was shared. No, so he's he in this Rinoff book, he he tells a story of him like basically calling Jackie Fox and Lita Ford and Rodney Bingenheimer, who is a K Rock DJ, and he asks them, Who are the best unsight acts in LA? Oh wow. And they feed him two names. The boys with a Z and Van Halen. Now, the boys has George Lynch and Mick Brown in it. Wow. Oh, that's right. Oh, my gosh. Dude, Dawkins. Thanks for... <laughs> I've needed, I've Wait, needed it. So, listen. A fan, listen, a fan needed, of the show. I, a fan of the show named Andre wrote the show and said, I really want a Dawkins episode. So that has to happen oh, at some point. Oh, my gosh. Because we appreciate Andre. But I will say, at least we're going to dip our toes right here with, with George Lynch and Mick Brown sneaking into the story for a minute. Bingenheimer is sold on Van Halen, though. But Gene thinks the name sucks. And he right, says it's, right, it yeah. sounds too much like the shirt company. That's literally what he says. Van Heusen, you know, you get a JCPenney. <laughs> so, but instead of knights and Satan's service. Yeah, I know, right? <sighs> Come on, man. Okay, so they convince him, Jackie and Lita and Bingenheimer, convince Gene to commit How? to going to see these two bands play together because they're playing a gig together. There's a there's uh, this really big, there's this thing from this period that you have to like this book really lays it out. But there's the Sunset Strip happening, right? And this is pre eighty Sunset Strip. So when we've talked about this show or the Sunset Strip on the show before, we've talked mostly about the eighties version. There's a sixties version of the Sunset Strip, right? And then yeah. and which we should probably talk about at some point because it's crazy. And then there's like it gets shut down, it gets regulated, it gets sort of gentrified and everything goes away. And then it starts to build back up in the seventies. 
So we're not going to get too much into that, but it's really interesting and it does play into the story because they Van Halen around this time had just gotten this opportunity to sort of level up on the Sunset Strip and play at this place called the Starwood. Up to this point, they've been playing at this other place called Gazzari's. Yes, this is so much fun. Not a respected <laughs> club in the music industry. This was essentially seen as the redneck bar at the end of the Sunset Strip. Yeah, and this is they had good bands. This is where Van Halen cuts their teeth because nobody on the Strip will let Van Halen in. One of the things that I think is so interesting about this period of Van Halen and about the struggle Van Halen has for years is that people because of what else is happening in music sides of hard rock, uh, people are not respectful of Van Halen as being anything other than a cover band. They just don't think there's a market for it. And so this, this permeates into the industry, but it also sort of permeates into the commercial side, you know, out like they, they can go to Pasadena, they can play high school auditoriums, they can play civic centers. They play the Pasadena civic center and like almost burn it down several times because so many people will come right on these shows. They promote themselves. But when they go to the sunset strip, they're playing for nobody on a Tuesday, right? So I say all this because they're supposed. So Gene Simmons is supposed to go see the boys and uh, Van Halen play together at the Starwood, and so he and, says he will. Go ahead. And I want everyone to just let your suspension of disbelief just fall away for a minute, because no one's supposed to see him without the makeup. Ooh. Right, right. Okay, how so, weird. So how weird is all that? He's like he's A and R. He's being the A and R guy. And nobody knows who he is. Yeah, and he's but he's but he's not supposed to be seen. Like how spooky all that is. Because I remember you'd see pictures of them with like shit over their faces and stuff. So so this comes into play in this story. So this is oh my god. This is what happened. So there, he is committed to go see them in like That's a week crazy. and a half. But he's been listening to demos and he he, he hears or not demos, but he somehow hears about the boys and he wants to see the boys. He like wants to get started. And when I read this story, it, it, it totally registers with every perception I have of Gene Simmons as being sort of like, sort of like over the top aggressive anytime he sets his mind to something. And so he's like, forget this. I can't wait a week. I just found out the boys are playing a party at Gazzari's. And so he goes to Gazzari's, which is like the place you do not go. Just think of whatever the redneck bar is in your town that you would make a joke about going to, but you would never go to. Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, without makeup, show up at Gazzari's. Wow. In the 80s, it was, it was you know, I mean, the, there's a lot of the hair bands were playing there. So in the 70s, it was like... Run! I didn't know that about that that place. So they and go, how interesting they go together. The, yeah, and they go undercover. They meet the boys in the dressing room, have to convince them they're Paul and Gene, and then they tell them they're coming to see them a few weeks later on. And this sets the scene locally on the Sunset Strip there and around Gazzari's on fire because Kiss was not just on the Sunset Strip; they were on the crappiest club on the Strip, and the Starwood is is now going to have this show with the boys and Van Halen playing together. And this is a big deal because both of these bands have, have garnered a little bit of a reputation for their guitar gods. So this is seen not oh just gosh. as an opportunity for them to showcase, but it is Eddie versus George. Oh, we are going to get to talk about this show. I didn't even know that this was a double bill. That's the thing about Dokken. Andre, 
I know you're listening. It's all about George Lynch, man. It's just that Lynch tone is it's terrific. Like he's not as gifted a guitar player as Van Halen, but boy, he sounds like it. You know, the tone just sounds like really great. So, okay. So we're going to talk about the show. Remember the show is brought to you in part today by modern empire music featuring the brand new release from rock band Fox bad. It's called do South and it's out now wherever you stream kick-ass music. And they told me, you know, typically these things, they, they come with a script. They just said, Play a little bit of your favorite song on the new Foxbat record, and that will count as our time on your show. And I said, any chance I get to listen to this song called Introducing Wolves is like me getting paid twice. Introducing Wolves by Fox Bat from their brand new record on Modern Empire Music, and it is called Do South. Check it out now. Stream it now. Tell your friends now. And uh, now, let's go back to uh, rock and roll bedtime stories. So the Kiss guys go to this gig, and the boys play first, and Gene is blown away, and he is only interested in the boys. So he goes backstage after their set to congratulate them. And the way I sort of see this happening is that he goes back and he and he's probably ready to make a freaking deal, right? Like he's stoked. He's Gene Simmons. He's like, this, these are my guys. George Lynch just killed it. And as they start to talk, Van Halen goes on. And there's something you hear, if you ever hear about Van Halen's, especially in the early days, is stage volume. They're so loud that Gene yeah. can't talk. To George Lynch and the boys. So he's like, forget it. We'll do this later. He goes back to VIP to watch them. Now, the other thing you hear in the early Van Halen research is who Roth is always getting compared to. Do you know what the early comparison that Roth got every every time he went out was? It's something weird. It's like different than what you would think. Uh, it's Jim Dandy. Jim Dandy, yeah. So I'm thinking about doing a spinoff series uh, along with our Albums That Changed My Life series, potentially doing a um, Bands We Almost Forgot or something series. Because there's these names that come up where it's like they've been lost to rock history, but at the mo at certain moments right before something else big happened, they were like very important. And this is one of those. Black Oak Arkansas is not a band that most people can say more than three sentences about. Or or say I really like them. Their songs I like are uh, right. Yeah, you you got nothing. I've got a Black Oak Arkansas tribute record that back in our Ice Cream Headache days, a label sent me 
Uh, so I know a little bit, but like this is a band who, whenever David Lee Roth tried to tried to go on stage and do his thing, people called him a Jim Dandy ripoff for oh, years. Yeah, weird for years. And so that's what Gene thinks. He thinks, what is with this Jim Dandy guy? But within two numbers, this is from a quote. I thought, my effing God, listen to this. So now his focus shifts, and he wants Van Halen, even if their name sounds like a damn shirt company. And it's their names. Well, God, and, what and a that's, great you legacy. Know, back to this Trojan Rubber Company thing. They were Trojan <laughs> Rubber Company, and then they become Mammoth, and then there's another band called Mammoth. And they get at, and so at this point, they've let Roth in. Now, we haven't really talked about this whole rivalry. If you get this Renoff book, there's a lot. I mean, the first, like, probably 100 pages of the book, Roth is not in the band yet, right? So there's this back and forth of Roth has this other, this other band that is terrible, but people go see because Roth is so interesting to watch on stage. Yeah, and he's flamboyant, and he's always got women hanging on him. I mean, that's just everything you read about him. There's just girls just can't stand it. Uh, he just has this sort of aphrodisiac quality with women, and so they, you know, I didn't even put this in the notes, but do you know how he gets himself into Van Halen? Have you ever heard this part of the story? No, no, I okay, haven't. So his band breaks up, and he was the son of a doctor. You yeah. probably know this. And they were very, very well-to-do. So he had some equipment. He had some of the equipment when the band breaks up. And he, and uh, at the time, there's also some sort of transition happening with the Van Halen brothers. And they need a PA. They, oh. they rent David's PA. And eventually, he makes them a deal that he won't charge them if, he lets the, if they let him get on stage with them. And then he slowly slimes his way into the band. That's, wow, a, that's that is, a true story. Usually it's like, well, you got the PA, I guess you're the singer, but man, that's a great I way mean, that's essentially it. what happened, but it just took a while to convince him because they really didn't like David Lee Roth. They, they really didn't like him. He had to like he had to snake his way kind of in. I mean, how how classic. I will say it's, that even though Van Halen Rising is about the Van Halen brothers and it's a very pro the Van Halen brothers, at the end of the day, in this particular book, I came out loving David Lee Roth. Like, he's just such a... I mean, I don't know that I would love him as a in person, as someone to hang out with or invest my time and energy and money with, but, like, as a character, he's fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. And I... So, that was... That's the, the two main things about the band, and I had this connection with, the, it's those things. So, Eddie was like... I guess what like watching Jimi Hendrix was like, or, or watching yeah. just someone doing guitar yeah. tricks that were out of this world, just amazing, beautiful melodies, and then thinking, man, I really wish that I could be that guy, like for Pete's sake. Yep. And 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 when I lived in New York, like in the two thousands, he was an EMT. Do you know that? Like he's a fascinating, yeah. super interesting guy. And by the way, I want to give a plug to his sister who created the Rockabye Baby series. So if you have little bitty tiny kids, <laughs> I didn't know that, that was to, her. If you have little kids, listen. All you peoples that have little kids, or if you just want to hear some stuff to mellow out, or you need something to mellow out to listen to, Rockabye Baby is this all these like? It's just like what is it like a 
harpsichord or a marimba or it's like a little yeah. percussion yeah, 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 instrument. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like cute stuff. So they'll have like the entire but they have like, for everybody. West, and they have like a radio yeah, head. Yeah, kiss. There's like a Black and, Sabbath um, one. And that's Dave's sister. That's amazing. So the whole him being an EMT thing. Quick side story that I'd sort of forgotten. But whenever this comes up, I'm reminded that I interviewed John Tesh. Uh, on the radio in the early 2000s around the time this was happening. And I remember Tesh making a joke about David Lee Roth and doing a David Lee Roth impression as an EMT. Like John Tesh doing his, oh, I'm David oh Lee Roth gosh. and I, I'm an EMT. And I forget what the he said. He used some David Lee Roth line and was like, can you imagine? He's in the back of the ambulance and he says, Bleh. and I was like, this is bizarro that John Tesh is impersonating David Lee Roth. Hold on a minute because I need to check your boozy bop. <laughs> Okay, so back to this story. Gene Simmons is in the dressing room oh. after the show. And there's this funny anecdote in the Renoff book. He says Gene is asking if they have management. And they tell him, no, we have nothing. Except one of them says, oh, actually, we did have this yogurt company that wants to sponsor us. And Renoff writes, quote, please do me a favor, says Simmons. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so he tells Van Halen I want to manage you and I want to cut a demo with you and he literally has them in the studio at 6am the next morning yeah they do the demo Isn't that crazy they show him tons of demos he picks 13 and they go to town have you listened to these they're on YouTube yeah I've heard the demo the tension later is that Simmons just gets infatuated with Eddie as a talent and as they get done with these initial 13 tracks Gene calls Bill a coin and this is the name I'm sure you know plenty about, but for our purposes, he's Kiss's manager. And Gene is trying to make this sales pitch to Bill to also manage Van Halen. But Bill is worried about managing Kiss. <laughs> and they have momentum, and he's worried about them losing it. And, and this is a reoccurring thing. Everybody in Kiss and in the Kiss camp is concerned when Gene gets on a jag like this, right? Yeah, sure. He right. wants Gene out of California and back in New York. So he strings Gene along to get him back to New York. So, because, I mean, they're in, like, he literally went and plucked this man out of a bar and the next morning, puts him in a recording studio and spends weeks, like, working with him. And so he says, listen, bring the band back to New York. Just come back to New York, Gene, and we'll do overdubs here. And here's here's one of the most fascinating parts of the story to me. And I would think you'd probably know this, but I'm surprised if you do that you've never told me this story. So one thing I'd always overlooked in this conversation about Van Halen and I know this sounds totally obvious, they're a power trio. So Roth knows how to play guitar, but not on a level that's super useful on the, for this band. No, he, he'll, he'll do ice cream, man. Right. So sorta. There's, anecdotes sorta. In the, there's anecdotes in this runoff book about him playing like James Taylor folk songs on an acoustic. <laughs> so when, when, when Eddie <laughs> is on stage soloing, when Eddie is soloing, he's the only guitar. Yeah, But he goes into the studio, and Gene tells him to overdub, and he doesn't know what to play. He has <laughs> no idea how to do a second guitar part to accent what he plays on stage. He doesn't know how to do it. Oh, that's so amazing. And this becomes the, the, the thing that really separates what Gene does with these demos and what becomes the Van Halen sound is, you know, when... Um, 
the other folks get involved and Warner Brothers gets involved, they start to let Van Halen be Van Halen live in the studio because these guys had been a live unit for so long that you didn't want to mess with the formula, right? It takes a while for Eddie to learn how to play in the studio. They're a live band, but they're tight because they're brothers and they've been doing this for for quite a while. And so he eventually figures it out, but... Eddie and even the rest of the band have gone on record saying they did not love the way the Simmons produced them. If you want to hear these demos, I already mentioned, they're in the show notes. And they've come to be known as the Zero Demos. So, they're in New York, and simultaneously, Simmons is trying to do rehearsals with Kiss, because they're supposed to go to Japan. So he invites Van Halen down to the studio, and it's like sort of... It's like this sort of forced blind date thing he's trying to do, and he doesn't tell anybody. I can't imagine what this room must feel like. It so, must be so weird. During a break, he's like, oh, hey, Bill's about to drop by. Why don't you guys jump on our equipment and show him what you can do? <laughs> now, think about this if you're Eddie Van Halen, right? How and, annoying. And, and this, well, and also, if you if you go on to read, so I also just finished Eruption, the, the Guitar World editors, the guys who like had all these archived conversations with Eddie Van Halen. They put them all out in a book and you can read it. And it's awesome because it's like done sequentially. So all throughout his career, well, you start to learn if you talk, if you read much of Eddie talking that he not only is a guitar player, he becomes a guitar maker later in his life. Right. And he was (laughs) modifying guitars from the very, very beginning, doing all kinds of stuff where he would, and you probably know all this stuff, but gearheads know that he would, he only uses one knob on his guitar instead of like three or four or five or however many, a lot of guitars have on them. Right. He rewires them. So they only have one thing. He doesn't use, he doesn't use pedal boards. Like there's all these sorts of things, right. That he, that he does. And so to just take, take, look at this guy, who's noodling with a guitar in his hands 24 hours a day, seven days a week, literally most of the time, and say like, oh yeah, just get up on our equipment and play. That's not a thing that is going to work out well. Right, right. So they are not happy, but they don't really know how to get out of it. And so they have this less than stellar impromptu showcase in front of Bill LaCoin. And Bill will eventually pass on them. Because of the gear. (laughs) Now, he has his reasons, but one of the reasons was definitely that Paul Stanley was worried about Gene's attention. He and Bill both thought that Gene could not handle the distraction. But officially, they'll give other reasons, too. They say they don't like the songs, and they don't like the singer. <laughs> now, Which is a great way of saying you don't like Van Halen, in general, really, if you think about it. This is from the... Well, they like Eddie. They just don't like anything else. And that you've already sort of pointed that out, right? Eddie Van Halen is Van Halen in a lot of ways. This is from the book. I'm reading directly now. Before Van Halen left town, Simmons met with them. He tore up the contract they'd signed with his Man of a Thousand Faces production company and told them they were free to use the demo to try to get a deal elsewhere. He'd be back from tour in the spring, and if they still didn't have a recording contract, they could still expect help from him. Just, quote, give me a call, he said, and we'll do it again. Simmons shook their hands and gave them money for plane tickets back to L.A. Wow. So far out. Now, Thanks, Gene. Remember how I said there was noticeably an infatuation growing with Simmons where it came to Eddie. When Kiss gets back from Japan, Gene calls Eddie and Alex and asks them to cut demos for him. Huh. Huh. So they come in and cut I Got Love for Sale, Christine 16, and Tunnel of Love. 
Guess who's not invited? David Lee Roth. Uh, yeah. Now, this pisses Roth off. And it had been building, but now it starts to look like Gene's true intentions are really showing, which is he wants Eddie Van Halen. This is a quote from Roth. In Crazy from the Heat, Roth charged, quote, <laughs> Gene Simmons' true interest in Van Halen was conscripting Eddie Van Halen into their show in some form or another to get him to play on a record, get him to help write guitar solos, and get him into the band. Now, David Lee Roth is not short on self-confidence, but I think he's wise to know that what he has in the Van Halens is important, and what he is up against with Gene could be a big deal. David has the bluster and the overconfidence needed to be a rock star for sure, but he's not stupid. He knows this is a tenuous situation. And if you study history of this band, you can make a very compelling case that while David Lee Roth is definitely why they end up getting a record deal, his dogged determination in pushing the guys is sort of what gets them there, right? He simultaneously is the reason they don't get a record deal for a very long time. Over and over, there's these stories of music business guys having the same reactions that Gene has, which is, we get that the brothers are awesome, but this guy in tight pants is annoying at best. <laughs> yeah. And and the word talented is never uttered. You don't say David Lee Roth and talented in the same sentence. You say David Lee Roth and flamboyant. You say David Lee Roth and swag. You say David Lee Roth and interesting, maybe, but you don't say talented. Now, did you know that before the debut was ever recorded, there was talk of Hagar? No, no, I never heard this. So then, 76-ish? Yeah. So the Ted Templeman, his work before this was with Montrose. Oh, man, crazy. Eddie loved Montrose. So oh. faced with this challenge, the biggest commercial rock star in the world making a play for half your band... Gene Simmons, trying to get Eddie Van Halen. What does David Lee Roth do? Well, in this specific case, when Eddie and Alex go to do a session with Gene, he goes with them. <laughs> he was not invited, but he shows up. At one point, Simmons is again trying to get Eddie to overdub. We've already been through this. We know Eddie doesn't really know how to do that. They're not communicating. They're, they're sort of not, I don't know if they're fighting, but they're not communicating well. And Roth intervenes. And he has to translate for Eddie. This is, again, reading from the Renoff book. Roth marched into the studio and spoke to Edward using what uh, Liren, one of the guys telling the story, termed baby talk. He attempted to put what Simmons wanted into words that Ed would understand. Liren says, I don't remember how he said it, but he got the message across to Edward. And then the very next take, Eddie played it the way Gene wanted it. Simmons was like, yeah, 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 that's it. After Roth's assistance, Simmons was so satisfied with the result that Quote, when the band recorded it for Love Gun, Ace pretty much copied Eddie's solo note for note. And then there's like this quick aside in the book. But did Ace actually play that solo on Love Gun? Right. Did he? Uh, this guy in the book says he doesn't think he did. But, you know, it's still it's still credited to him. It's, it's one of my, it, it, as far as guitar solos in that record, phenomenal number one. Love Gun. Great so, guitar solo. Over the next few months, this tension continues. Because Gene starts showing up at random venues and at random places around Van Halen. Sometimes he's at the whiskey when they play the whiskey. One pal of Eddie's says that Gene once took the both of them to see Cheap Trick. Can you imagine that? 
Oh, it'd be so much fun too. You're not a signed artist. You're just a guy who plays in, in Pasadena, California, and one of the biggest rock stars in the world shows up and takes you and your friend to see Cheap Trick. Like, what the hell? Um, he really only wants to talk to the Van Halen brothers, though. And it comes to a head one night when Kiss is playing at the Forum. And Gene says, hey, I'm going to leave you guys tickets at Will Call. And he does. For everyone but Dave. <laughs> Dave goes down there, and he suffers the embarrassment of being told that they do not have tickets for him as Eddie and oh Alex go into the venue. Oh. oh, my gosh. Now, Gene Simmons. I said David Lee Roth is not an idiot. And I'd like to say that Gene Simmons is not an idiot, but Gene should have known not to mess with Diamond Dave. That little anecdote happens in the summer of 77, and now I'm going to go back to reading from the book directly. Despite the passage of years, Roth never forgot this nub. Roth bumped into Simmons in Los Angeles in the spring of 1984, sometime before Van Halen played the form. Roth greeted Simmons warmly, and his eminable Diamond Dave style said, Hey, Gene, how you doing? Good to see you. <laughs> the two stars spoke for a few minutes before Roth said, Hey, we're going to be playing the form. You want to come down to the show? Simmons smiled and said, Sure, I'd love to. <laughs> okay, I'll take care of you. The night of the sold-out show, Simmons went to the will call window. Tickets for Gene Simmons, he said, and after a couple of minutes, the clerk returned and informed Simmons that there were no tickets for that name. So fantastic. And, you know, Dave really wins in the end. I mean, he gets Eddie and Alex. A lot more we could talk about with Van Halen. I have a feeling we're not. this is not going to be our last Van Halen episode, but I feel like that is a good place to stop. And, and wow, what a, what a nice little bookmark. Nice little spot, too. Wowzers. Wowzers. If you have a Van Halen, a specific Van Halen question or thought, you are talking to one of the world's foremost experts in Van Halen and a guy who just read two books about them. Um, <laughs> send us a note. We are the story guys at gmail.com. We'll see what we can do. And uh, until next time, in your best David Lee Roth, uh, what, what should we keep doing? Oh, yeah. Keep telling stories. I forgot the fucking catchphrase. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.